need to make two apologies uh, real quick, just a couple of disclaimers. Number one, <clears throat> I've been struggling with this cough for a little while, so I want to apologize to all of you who... Um, I will do my best to suppress it if you will do your best to ignore it. How about that? Is that a deal? Can we, can we work on that? Is that a deal? Thank you. And then number two, um, we're in the middle of a series on the gospel according to John. And um, the news that just broke last night regarding the shooting in Buffalo is, has me and many, of course, many people incredibly disturbed. And I guess my disclaimer is I've been throughout my entire life really, really bad at social commentary. It's just never been something I've been good at. I mean, how do I, how do I put into words um, the complete utter disgust that you have for acts like this and for the reasons that it was given? all that kind of stuff. It's just never been something that I've been good at. And I know that that can cause some hurt and pain for somebody in my particular position as a technical director of a church to need to be able to voice. Um, and part of what is happening today in the message today where Jesus is in the temple and turning over tables, um, I'm going to try to address that at the end. Um, but my disclaimer or my apology or whatever you want to call it, is I am painfully aware of how inadequate anything that I say uh, is going to be. Um, the continual fight for racial justice, the continual fight that we, the ideological fight that we are all having regarding ideas that have tremendously violent consequences are, is something that has just constantly been the kind of the background and the foreground of our existence for quite some time. And over the course of years, it's, uh, <clears throat> it's grown continually pressing how important it is for a community like this to say things, to voice things, to stand for things that are really, really critical and important. Because this isn't just a social game. This is not just a, a political game. These are real lives, real people. And they affect people in our community <clears throat> very deeply. And if any one part of the body suffers, we all suffer with it, right? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach through what I have prepared for today in John chapter 2. And then at the end, I hope to address some of the perspectives that may be helpful for why a Christian community, those who choose to follow Jesus, and what the heck do Jesus' teachings might have to say and the implications. It's going to be a fairly long thread in the sense of we're going to pull this event that happens in Jesus' life, what's famously known as the cleansing of the temple, and we're going to pull that string all the way through to modern-day white supremacy and white evangelicalism. That's going to be, well, it's going to be a stretch. We're going to, we're going to, but that's where we're headed. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, making a whip of cords, which is one of my favorite passages. Like, in the other three gospel accounts, Jesus shows up there, and all of a sudden, he just gets ticked off. Here, he's making a whip of cords, like he's taking the time to put this thing together. This is not some fly-off-the-handle moment. He drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
He told those who were selling the doves, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews or the Judeans, remember, it's important to recognize that the word in Greek there could mean either Jew or Judean. The gospel according to John has been used for a lot of anti-Semitic teaching in the Christian church for some history. Part of the reason why that is is a misunderstanding of the Greek behind this term. What may be going on is a reference to a particular expression of Jewish thought found in the southern portion of Israel in Judean thinking. Then the Jews or the Judeans said to him, what sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in and, and, and three days, I will raise it up. Then they said, this temple has been under construction for 46 years and you will raise it up in three days? Sarcastic much? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered, remembered that he said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There ends our reading. For those of you who have ever seen a Jesus video, um, fairly middle-aged white European guy with long hair and sackcloth is running through the temple and turning over all these tables. And it's a fairly violent scene. It's one of the most famous scenes of Jesus' life that depicts a particular kind of expression of zealousness or righteousness that is contrasted with the Jesus that has the sheep on, that's very calm and very nice and speaks with a very alluring British accent that kind of lulls you to sleep. There's lots to say in here, specifically the references that Jesus makes, specifically the Bible verses and the prophetic verses that are all pulled into these sayings. One of the things that's very difficult about much of what's happening is I don't know if you have these passages memorized, like Zechariah and Psalms and Malachi and what it is that's going on and the whole history, but I think G Danielle has talked about this scripture-soaked minds. So when they say, zeal for my house, there's a full reference that's coming from the long history of the prophetic tradition in the Jewish mind and thinking about what the temple is, what it stands for, and what it means. And so what I'd like to do rather than just, here's the references, you know, take a screenshot, <coughs> Instagram that, woohoo, that's my pastor said, or my technical director said. What I'd like to do is just ask the question, what really did the temple actually mean? What is the meaning thread that is being woven through this story? And when you think of temple, you think building, cult, sacrifice, sheep, gold, big, stones, white, whatever. What I'd like to do is I'd like to get to the narrative flow, the narrative thread of the foundation that is behind the temple. Because obviously over time, this huge thing, several dozen football field size platform with the temple on top, this thing is massive. It's absolutely huge. It's astonishing to me how people in the first century even built this kind of thing in the first place without all of our quote unquote modern technology which none of our modern technology even knows how to lift some of these stones. What is the narrative thread? What does this mean? When you look at this thing as a Christian in the 21st century in Silicon Valley, you might think old building, stones, cult, religion. What I'd like to do is try to suggest 
that there's another meaning structure that's being flown through the story, specifically in the gospel according to John, around the full narrative and story all the way back to Genesis. And to use that thread to pull out what maybe is happening here with Jesus and why what Jesus is doing. And specifically what he says about turning my father's house into a marketplace is just so critically important. Something that I have a feeling that many of us are going to be like, oh my goodness, we've been doing exactly the opposite of what Jesus has been teaching us. So that's what we're headed. Uh, this is a picture of the southern portion of the temple. <clears throat> the reason why that's important is because you can actually see the gates. Like when Jesus actually does go into the temple, there's a very specific location. This is the southern end where the pilgrims were all, all were. They're coming from all over the course of the, the ancient Near East and the Mediterranean. They're coming because it is time to celebrate the festival. It's time to be there. And these people uh, who are the money changers and the people who are doing the sheep and the goats are basically take advantage of everybody that's coming. Oh, these people have a religious conviction. Oh, these people need to buy something in order to practice their religious conviction. <laughs> I'm going to make some good money off of spending, uh, off of providing goods and services. And I don't really care about the religious conviction. I just care that I'm going to gain some good money because religious people who are religiously devout and convicted, boy, are they willing to shell out because this is their God that they're talking about. So when Jesus comes in here, there's all of that that's happening too. The only other disclaimer I want to say before we move on is that you need to think about the temple as a layer cake. This is, by the way, the greatest number of layers in a layer cake. There's something like 150 layers in this layer cake. It was Guinness Book of World Records. You can look it up. It's kind of fun. It lasted for 69 seconds before it toppled over, according to Guinness Book of World Records. And not too dissimilar, <laughs> it's kind of like the temple. The temple lasted until 69, and then it was destroyed, uh, for those of you who know. Anyway, so I'm missing a whole bunch of things. The temple is one of those, the symbols that are found in our tradition are so rich with so many different layers of meaning. I recognize that I'm missing a whole bunch of it. Let me just recognize that, okay? And you could, sp <laughs> you could spend <clears throat> the rest of your life studying all the different layers of the temple and what it means. Here, I'd like to just focus on one. Because one of the most powerful images that is woven into the narrative of the Israelites is the story of creation, the idea that in the very beginning, God took chaos, this utter complete void, an absolute wasteland, no meaning, no purpose, and did something amazing, transformed that into something meaningful and purposeful, and placed you and I, humanity, in the midst of what we call now the Garden of Eden, to create, sustain, guard, care for this beautiful and wonderful creation. This is at the center of the mindset of the entire biblical narrative. Remember, just not too long ago in John chapter 1, how does it start? In the beginning was the Word. Now you're supposed to say, Word. In the beginning was the Word. That is no accident. There's a clear allusion back to something very clear of what's happening, which is to say, that whatever happened back in Genesis, the story that we tell about God taking chaos and turning it into something meaningful and purposeful, a place where humans can flourish and thrive and belong and be loved, that kind of world is what is the ultimate picture, the ultimate thing that we're driving for. And it was symbolized then by the Garden of Eden, which apparently is, you know, in Hayward. So we're not, we're not too far. 
Friends, we're very close to the original creation, the Garden of Eden. The word, <laughs> Tony says, praise the Lord. Everybody, let's get in our cars and let's go. <laughs> it's just right over here. You ever wondered, you know, what, what the underworld's going to be like? It's in Hayward. It's in Hayward. That's where we need to go. The word Eden means pleasure or delight. But it becomes this image and picture and symbol. The garden, a lot of people spend a lot of time, especially in Christian apologists, and you might, some of you might have gone down this road, because I went down this road. Where exactly is Eden? So you look on a map, you look at Iraq, and you take on Afghanistan, and you follow the, right? And then there are the mountains. There's the mountains of Ararat, and I think I can see Noah's Ark through Google Maps somewhere there. You know, you can, you try to do all this mapping. May I suggest that maybe the location of Eden is not the point. The point of Eden is to describe a reality in which all things that were chaos are now good and beautiful. And because it is a reality here on earth that was essentially ascribed between heaven and earth, the Garden of Eden becomes the very first image and picture of what heaven and earth together look like. Now remember, if you've heard me talk a little bit, we've mentioned this multiple times, that the split world dichotomized universe, heaven up there, earth down here, good up there, and grungy, you know, fleshy, not so great stuff down here, that is a false idea. That doesn't, that's not found in our tradition. What's constantly in our tradition is the idea that if you have a conception of good, beautiful, wonderful, even if you have a conception <coughs> of what is perfect, the whole point is we are trying to create that, experience the fullness of that right here on earth. And not only in Hayward, but also in Palo Alto, in Silicon Valley, in Buffalo, New York, in Ukraine. Whatever it is that we believe about heaven and earth coming together we are not just extracting ourselves out of here and waiting for some pie in the sky. We're looking for it right here and right now. What happens? You know the story? They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of a sudden their eyes are opened and they realize, now I know the knowledge of good and evil, good and bad. Knowledge that they were not created to know. They were not created to know what it's like to be betrayed. That was not their intent in creation. But now they know. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As a result of their disobedience, they get kicked out. <laughs> Exiled is the, the more technical academic term. They are out of the garden. And what does God place at the front or the gates of the garden to protect them from ever going back in? Does anybody remember? Hey, two angels, yeah. Cherubim, cherubim. We like to say cherubim. Isn't this nice? Oh, yeah. You, know, you would think like Adam and Eve was like, I could take them. I could totally get back in there. This is no problem whatsoever. Right, this is, this is an unfortunate hallmark image of cherubim in Hebrew, cherovim, which sound, I mean, like even the Hebrew, cherovim, is a strong, harsh, fiery word, not to indicate those things, but to indicate these things right here. Fiery, angelic beings who are there to guard and protect the Garden of Eden. It has been soiled. And so now those angels are going to be there at the gate, at the front of the garden. Now, why do I tell you this story when we're talking about the temple and Jesus overturning tables? Because this image of the cherubim, the cherubim, being placed at the front of the Garden of Eden becomes a symbol that is 
prominent in the building of the first tabernacle of the Israelites when they're wandering in the desert. For those of you who remember, first of all, the first the, the tabernacle, and then ultimately the temple is going to take on this imagery. Later on in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, we read, And Solomon made the curtain of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen and worked cherubim into it. These are obviously artist renditions. This is not an original picture for those of you who are going to Instagram that. So this is an artist depiction of what they may have looked like. But you can imagine that the tabernacle, which is supposed to be the very presence of God, presence of God where heaven and earth once again meet, the tabernacle becomes the very image of that Garden of Eden idea that the goodness of heaven and earth has come together in one place and now they are codifying it, they are putting it into a very permanent material expression and symbol. Notice what's, oops. Notice what's there. This is an actual reconstruction. For those of you who are going to Israel with us, you will be in this room. <laughs> that would be very fun. Um, <clears throat> you can see the images of the cherubim, the cherubim there, guarding what is now known as the Holy of Holies. Now, you can think of these as just simply decorative, but if you read through the ancient literature, in addition to all the religious cultic practices that are happening in the temple, this is also a symbol of, that reminds me of Genesis and the Garden of Eden, and if I go, by, if I go into there, it is as if I am entering the garden once again. It is if I am being recreated. It is as if the place of heaven and earth coming together is now actually in a symbolic location behind those curtains. And so the story of Genesis and the story of the tabernacle and the temple start to now get fused over time and throughout this evolution. So it's not just Eden anymore. Now it's the temple because the tabernacle is the precursor to the temple. And the temple also has a very similar layout with the angels there. When you see the temple then, I don't want you to just see a building. You are also, nor do I just want you to see <laughs> a cultic representation of like holiness, like holiness in the presence of God. You also now need to see that this is a physical representation, a symbol of where heaven and earth come together. The Edenic vision of where life is supposed to be, what it's supposed to be. And we are supposed to guard it and protect it where flourishing happens. And if God was turning chaos into creation, into beauty and order, then this temple represents that same movement of turning whatever chaos we experience here on earth into order, into beauty, into restoration. Many of you know the phrase, the Shekinah, if you come from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, that's a very, that's a Hebrew word just simply means the very presence because this tabernacle uh, is called the Mishkan, the Mishkan. Garden of Eden, tabernacle, temple. That string of meaning is woven all throughout. So that when the high priest and Josephus talks about that, I didn't pull out all the Josephus quotes because they are extremely long and lengthy. He apparently liked to talk a lot. When the priest enters into this moment, it is as if there's a recreation happening. 
a re-entering into the Garden of Eden, a re-entering into that moment. And all, everything that the temple then represents in the minds of devout followers is going to be the fullness of that creation narrative. I follow these commandments. I follow these laws. I follow these teachings. I follow this way. Why? Because by following that way, my life becomes essentially a vessel by which chaos turns into order. Destruction turns into beauty. Injustice turns into justice. That's how we establish what is good and right here on this world. So you can imagine the destruction of this thing. You know, some of you know about this, the series of destructions that happen, which is why we have first temple, second temple, third temple, the destruction in 70 AD by the Romans. That entire story, you can imagine what that would have meant. I was teaching this to a bunch of, this is completely a side note, but it was super fun for me. I was teaching a bunch of sophomores this when I was a, a sophomore teacher at a high school. And I was telling them all about this and they wanted to depict what that would have felt like. And this is what they came up with. Okay, so it is 70, 80 and the Romans are about to destroy the temple. Go. <laughs> <laughs> They had far too much fun doing that. But the reason why I like that image and like that picture is because many of you know that in certain cultures, specifically in the Middle East, what does it mean to be under somebody's foot? Remember the shoe being thrown at George W. Bush? That's what that means. It's not just the destruction of a building. It is a complete assault on everything that you stand for, everything that is meaningful to you. And so while they were having a lot of fun with that, and, you know, they're sophomores <laughs> in, in high school, the fact that they stepped on it rather than just tossed it up, the fact that they were doing that is essentially the meaning, the, the sense that is going on here. With that in the backdrop, then, what's going on? Is it just simply that the money changers and the, <laughs> the people <coughs> selling the sheep and the goats and the doves are taking advantage of people? Is that what's going on? Or is it something even deeper than that, which is something that I might propose to you? He overturned their tables, told those who were selling doves, take these things out of here. You are Stop making my father's house a marketplace. And in some translations, it says, how dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? Now, normally we don't like to get into the deep Greek. We don't want to feel like we're being super academic or whatever. But the Greek is really important here. Me poete ton oikon tu patros mu oikon emporiu. Emporiu. The first word, oikon, or econ, that word is the same word for where we get the word economy. And economy comes from the Greek word oikon, which means house, and nomos, which means principle or law or rule or organized. And the question with economists is, how do you organize the house? What principles guide it? And Danielle asked me to do a whole thing on anti-cap, or not, not anti-capitalism. She wanted me to do, um, do my little capitalism screed, I guess, based upon this. And I decided to set that aside because that, that's going to require something different. I wanted you to see, at the very least, that the money changers and the selling 
is connected to the very same root idea. And while economists in our day have grand theories, obviously incredibly thoughtful theories, the most fundamental idea is how are we going to organize our house, which comes from an idea of what kind of house is this that we are organizing. Because even economists to this particular day can be predicated on certain ideas of what kind of house this is that we are organizing. There's a little bit of a snapshot into some of the thinking. The first phrase, and it, this is really important, stop making my father's house a marketplace. If you were to really translate this like word for word, stop making the house of my father a house of a market. There's a double phrase phraseology there. And what's the word for market? Emporium. Does anybody know that word? An emporium. The kind of principle and organization that is happening here is not just simply that they are taking advantage of people financially. It is that they have transformed the entire idea of what the house is in the first place. That's what is most fundamental here. You can absolutely be upset at these people because they are taking advantage financially. They are reaping goods and services. They are taking people who are religiously convicted and taking advantage of that kind of conviction for wealthy gain. That is true. That is happening. But what is also happening here is that there's a fundamental mental shift. This house is not a house that represents the father. And given the entire history, this doesn't represent the beautiful, creative power of the entire Genesis narrative woven all through the temple's history. It's not that anymore. It's just a marketplace where we get to exchange religious goods and services. That's what this house is. It's a mental, fundamental shift. And so what these people are doing is changing the economy of this location, not into a place of restoration, of shalom, of peace, where people come together and find wholeness and belonging, pleasure and delight, where every single person on the face of the planet is created in the image and likeness of God. What they've done is they've shoved that out of the way and they say, that's not what this place is. This place is an emporium. It's a place where we get to trade. It's a place where we get to exchange. It's a place where we get to uh, manufacture or, you know, shop. That's what this place is. And that, to me, seems to be one of the most fundamental sins of what's going on here. People are going to take advantage of people all the time. The question is, what belief system allows you to do that in the first place? And if you believe that the religious institution is just simply there for an exchange of goods and services, then of course the natural next step is, then I can take advantage of that. It is fundamentally a philosophical, ideological, religious belief and conviction. Is that what this house is for? And rather than this house being about creation and beauty and wonder and mystery and connection and wholeness and shalom and belonging. Instead of that, no, it's, a, it's this. It's, a, it's an emporium. I'm going to go one step further because Jesus does. What do you, how, how dare you do this? How dare you say this about this place? Show us a sign. Jesus answered this. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise. 
destroy this temple first of all do you know how hard it is to destroy the temple even today the romans couldn't destroy the entire thing they like chipped into the rocks they couldn't destroy i mean how do you destroy three days it's taken 46 years herod started this thing decades ago you what do you what the heck are you talking about but of course what he was saying was not the physical temple but now he's pushing the analogy further the temple that he's talking about was his own body his own body so now in this rhetorical banter and back and forth, what Jesus is essentially doing is all of that stuff that he just talked about, about the temple, he's now talking about himself. What kind of audacious statement is this? Wait, wait, wait. The, the temple, this thing that is so highly symbolic of the entire narrative and, and breadth of our religious identity, you're that thing? Yes, that's what Jesus is saying. And so you could spend a lot of time here, but what I would like to propose and suggest to you, my friends, is very much like the Eden was the place where heaven and earth come together. The temple and the tabernacle was the place where heaven and earth came together. Jesus, once again, and these writers are suggesting that it is in Jesus, too, also, and the way in which we live following that Jesus where that heaven and earth also come together. This is an incredibly profound and audacious statement. And I'm going to push it one step further because not only is he saying that and equating that, but then he's also equating and drawing in the entire same dilemma and sin that people did with the temple we do with Jesus. What did what is now happening? Very much like we have economized or transformed a physical place and a location in an institution into a marketplace. We can do the exact same thing with the very person of Jesus. Whereas the movement of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, presence of Jesus, all, all of that that we study and that we're committed to here, that was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth come together, where chaos is turned into beauty and order, where injustice is made right, where marginalized people are made family, all of that stuff that happens in and through the person of Jesus has been turned into a marketplace. And I started thinking about the various ways in which not only have religious institutions, but Jesus himself has been turned into a marketplace, leveraged for the exchange of goods and services, <clears throat> made, made essentially into a factory of promoting my own ideas or my own propensities, or I can get certain particular pieces of value as, as a result of this and is it possible is it possible my friends that people can turn something that is that beautiful about a person and a movement and to teach into a commodity to simply sell a namesake by which we can exchange religious goods and services is it possible that we can do that too We've turned the temple once again into a marketplace. Now, multiple people have written extensively on this. And you could spend a good amount of time analyzing and maybe even going through your own audit of how you have done this. I don't want to spend too much time there. That's for you and your journey and your spirituality. You could probably think of many other people. <laughs> you can think of them now. Oh, they've definitely done this. And you could probably be right and justified in making that evaluation. 
What I'd like to do is draw the string of how turning Jesus into a marketplace has very real life consequences. When you take something or someone that is that good, transformative, part of the reason why many of us are in this book club after evangelicalism is because we're asking the question, what the H-E double hockey sticks happened? How did something so wonderful, so beautiful, so good turn into that? And how is that connected to what happened in Buffalo? Well, again, want to remind you <laughs> of the disclaimer. I'm going to be inadequate. I'm just trying to draw some strings through to show how there's certain responsibilities that we as followers of Jesus have regarding this teaching and how we ended up here. In their brilliant book, Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith do a sociological analysis of white evangelicalism. This book's almost uh, 15, 20 years old now. And you read it as if it was applicable today. And they go through a lot of different things regarding different belief systems, um, decisions that were made, the long history of racial relations in the church. But one of the things that they point out is this decision in 1785 to publish what's known as the Virginia Bill of the Establishment of the Freedom of Religion, <clears throat> Religious Freedom. And what essentially does, and I referenced this in a message many years ago, so this might be reviewed for some of you, is that this was the beginning. Notice 1785, this is before the codification of the First Amendment. What this essentially did is established in American culture the idea that there is not a state church because the state church is bad. That's what we came from in England, right? We don't want that anymore, the authoritarian. But what that opened up is what they call, and what many sociologists have suggested, a free market church religious culture, in which the free market now becomes the way in which we make our religious decisions. They write this. <clears throat> the organization of American religion gives religious groups the freedom to compete for adherence, which appears to create a dynamic vitality. Hey, I get to compete. I'm better than this church down there. Look at our sign out here. We have way better music. Listen to this pastor's, right? We get to create this kind of excitement and vitality. It also leads to competition, pluralism, and ultimately a very segmented market. Rather than a unified church, there's this fragmentation that happens and the creation, especially given our particular culture, of a free marketplace. I get to a marketplace of ideas. Now I get to choose particular locations. I don't like the Protestant church. I'm going to stick with the Catholic church. I don't like the Baptist church. I'm going to stick with the Methodists. I don't, li I don't like the, the EV free. I'm going to go stick with the Unitarian, right? The free market. Without making any value judgments, this is just the cultural history. Here's the value judgment. When religion becomes disestablished, it opens the doors for creative religious entrepreneurs to market their alternative face to religious consumers. The general public, likewise, is freed, at least in the ideal, to choose amongst the options. You know what? I don't like that church. They talk about racial justice a lot. I'm going to go to this church where I don't have to talk about that very much. You know what? This church, they talk about LGBTQ rights and inclusivity. I don't like that very much. I'm going to go to this particular church. You know what? That guy over there, he quotes way too much from Josephus. I'm going to go to this church over here. Disestablishment in the context of a new pluralistic nation led to a religious marketplace. With only slight exaggeration, the United States can be characterized as the mega 
mall of religious consumerism. And this, my friends, is one of the factors that they point to in why it is so freaking difficult to find churches that can explicitly say that white supremacy is evil. Why? Oh, I don't want to make white people uncomfortable, right? Because I now created a religious marketplace, I've created a particular <laughs> niche, and the people that come to my church or the people that are part of this institution are consumers of the religious goods and services that I have now produced. And if I lose them, I lose my job. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that. The challenge that pastors and clergy have, especially in these last couple years, it's just gotten exacerbated, exacerbated. Like, I can't, I can't say that. I can't, I can't, man, I, I kind of, I feel, le I, I, man, I want to say something, but I just can't because my people, why this? We have created the very culture, or at least we've been conditioned by and we've supported the very culture that has prevented us from speaking prophetically. And that leads us to some serious, significant questions of then what happens up here? What happens in this location in the 350,000 churches across America? That's the great question. Can we do that? My proposition to you, my friends, is to remind you the reason why our mission and the reason why our commitment and the reason why our core values and the reason why our identity is so grounded in Jesus is because of this. There is something beautiful, wonderful, powerful, compelling, world-changing, revolutionary that happened. Go through the history. What in the world happened in the first century that caused us to adopt, be influenced by, be transformed by loving your neighbor by loving your enemy, <clears throat> the value and the dignity of every single human person on the face of the planet. Where did those ideas come from? They have their roots in this history. But then, have we turned that beautiful thing <laughs> into a marketplace? I can't say anything because I'll lose half my church. And this is what Jesus says. Take this out of here. Stop turning the house of my father into the house of the emporium. Very simple line, my friends. Very simple. So flippin' hard to do, but very simple. This is my father's house. This is a house that is governed by that entire narrative and story of beauty, belonging, acceptance, creation. Stop turning it into an emporium. We need to focus on growth. I've heard this a couple times. Churches are losing. Pastors are having to cut their salaries. All that kind of, we, need, we now need to focus on growth. What's, what's the next strategy? Stop turning my father's house into an emporium. And then on a personal note, I really need Jesus to provide this for me. My devotion to Jesus is connected to the goods and services that I get. And on a personal note, on a personal spiritual note, stop turning your temple, which Paul calls you, into an emporium. And what's fascinating about all of these particular teachings is this isn't just to, like, clergy. 
and I put up a couple quotes that are very clearly applicable to clergy. <clears throat> this is to any follower of Jesus. Right? I mean, John doesn't care whether or not you're clergy or not in the 21st century concept of vocation or job. This is anybody who follows Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, stop turning any house into an emporium. Because when you do, when you create a marketplace, bad things happen. You start taking advantage of people. You can't speak prophetically. You lose the narrative. You, you lose the story. <clears throat> You've lost the plot. This is not, this entire agenda is not an agenda of goods and services exchange. It's not an emporium. It's the Father's house. And the question is, of course, will we build it upon what Jesus actually intended and wanted? Or will we just simply, I don't know, get a couple sheep and goats and doves and turn it in once again to a marketplace? Just like what we've done in American culture that still persists to this particular day. That may mean I'm out of a job. But that's my responsibility is to do my best to try to elucidate what Jesus is teaching here. Where's Darren? I'm going to ask Darren to come. He's going to lead us in a closing song and we'll move into communion. <clears throat> I hope some of that was helpful or enlightening or at least convicting or challenging for you, my friends. Um, you're at a church that is trying to follow Jesus. <laughs> it's not easy all the time. It's not just an exchange of goods and services. It's really about what kind of... what. You know, later on, Paul calls this thing a temple and us a temple, not just the institution, but the actual community of people. And I'm very cognizant and aware of not turning this into a marketplace either. You are all created in the image and likeness of God. You are all agents of that creation narrative. Every single one of you. And how dare I turn any, anyone into a good or a service or some sort of commodity with which to trade. Let us also consider our act of communion to be the same. In that, this is a continuation and an expression <laughs> and a symbol of that very same story, of continuing on <clears throat> the long narrative of turning chaos into creation. As you come and take the elements, as you participate in communion, which is symbolically the bread, symbolically the body and the blood of Jesus, it is my hope that as you commune with the very presence of Jesus, you are reminded once again of that long creation narrative being rebirthed and recreated within you and about the commission of your life to live out that creation the fullness of what that temple and that tabernacle symbolize. That you are also entering, re-entering into that garden of Eden, even now and in this moment. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, all of you are welcome at this table because this is not our table. It's our Father's table. As Darren sings, come. Come.